Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you had a, a good Christmas. Uh, in the spirit of Christmas, we're going to uh, cover Matthew chapter 2 today, which is the Epiphany. If you've gone to a liturgical church, you'll know that Epiphany is supposed to happen on January 6th, and that's a very important date for me. I'm from South Louisiana, and that's when we can start eating king cake. So um, if you're unfamiliar, king cake is this, uh, it's like a... Um, uh, cinnamon bread type thing. It's got sugar on the top, and uh, you eat it between Epiphany and Mardi Gras, uh, and you hide a little baby in it. It represents baby Jesus, and whoever gets the baby has to bring the next king cake to the office the next week or the next day or however often you eat king cake in your office uh, or at your house. So um, it's just a way to extend the holiday gluttony, um, but uh, it's very very delicious. So let, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for coming, and uh, we thank you, God, for sending your Son to to Earth uh, on Christmas, and we take this time to remember that, and we uh, ask that you open our hearts and minds to what your Word has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So the very first question that comes to mind is, who are the Magi? Uh, and actually, it's pretty easy to figure out if we read these, these verses carefully. So we know that they're from the east, or at least east of Israel. So that puts you in probably India or uh, China, maybe Australia, probably not. Um, but that is east. Um, and so we know that so they're probably Asian, or they're definitely Asian. And um, the second thing we know is that they were very smart people. They read the scriptures, the current kind of scriptures of the the, uh, the time. They studied the skies. I don't think they were Jewish. They probably studied all the texts. But they had a, a, a deep understanding of, of kind of what was going on because they saw the star and was able to understand that Jesus had been born and that he was going to be king of the Jews. And so that, that's pretty impressive. So we, we have two, two clues here. They were Asian, and they're very smart. And so I can t- say with certainty that they were ancient-day Berkeley students. So um, we also note that they were men of faith. They traveled two years to worship Jesus and uh, to worship a king that was not even their own king, uh, at least not in the physical sense. They, they weren't Jewish people, so they weren't coming to worship their king of the Jews. They were coming to worship you know, the king of, of the other Jews. Maybe, maybe they had an understanding that, that Jesus was more than just king of the Jews and was the king of kings. We, we don't know from, from the text. But they definitely had faith because all they had was a star and some scrolls. And based on their reading and their stargazing, they, they set out on a two-year journey towards uh, Jerusalem, towards uh, Israel, to, to worship Jesus. So that, that's... Um, that's a pretty impressive step of faith there. And uh, so we'll continue the story. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. <clears throat> so Jerusalem here probably refers to the local Roman government. Um, and I, I kind of get the sense that Herod had no idea who Jesus was or that he had been born or had no idea <clears throat> about any of that. Um, 
And so he's disturbed because they said, we want to worship the king of the Jews. And he had been appointed, you know, the Roman kind of ruler over Israel at the time. And so he, he, he feels threatened. And, and Jerusalem with him, probably, you know, his kind of cabinet, his, the people working with him uh, were, were also disturbed. And so he calls together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asks them, where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they were replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So this is the first prophecy that is uh, fulfilled by Jesus in the story. Uh, and prophecy will be a theme in this, uh, in this text. Uh, so... You know, and so immediately Herod calls the chief priest, and you kind of maybe get the sense that maybe there is some collusion there. Maybe, um, you know, he was the kind of Roman government, but maybe the uh, he'd given a lot to the chief um, to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Uh, we're not sure, but it, it it does kind of appear that way at the end of Jesus's life too, where the kind of together the Romans and the the kind of religious establishment worked together for the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, we're not, we're not exactly sure what that relationship was like. But they did know immediately where Jesus would be born. They didn't have to consult amongst themselves. They didn't have to go back and read, the te- read uh, Isaiah or um, wherever, you know, whatever other prophecies. They, they immediately knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it makes you wonder why the Magi didn't know it would be in Bethlehem. They were, after, after all, had come two years based on their own study of the scriptures, you would think that they knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And my thinking is, you know, they did travel two years. Uh, They were late to the birth, uh, also like Berkeley students. And they, uh, so in that time, you know, they're expecting, you know, this, this kind of kingly royalty figure. Maybe they expected that Jesus would be discovered by this point and brought to Jerusalem, which is kind of the capital. And that, that kind of makes sense. They, you know, they, and you can kind of imagine the, the magic coming, we saw a star. We're here to see the king. And Herod's like, what king? And they're like, you don't know? And so there's this, all this kind of confusion uh, in this kind of meeting. But at any rate, Jesus is not in Jerusalem, and Herod doesn't know about uh, Jesus. And so the next thing that happens is Herod calls the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So we know right away that something bad's going on. How do we know that? We, without reading any more of the, the text, how do we know that Herod is up to no good? And we know because he called them secretly. Things that are done in secret rarely are done, are, are, rarely are good things. And, and Secret things, things done in darkness in the Bible are often sin. And we have areas in our own life that we keep secret, don't we? Areas in our own life that we hide from other people, hide from our spouses, hide from our friends, hide from our, the, the people that we wor- worship with because we're ashamed. Because we, we know at some level deep down inside that it's sin. It's something that God does not agree with. And I'm not talking about just things that we are private about. Obviously, we have to be private about some things. Uh, Boundaries are an important part of adult relationships. But I'm talking about the things that are secret, the things that 
we are ashamed of. And it's easy for us to consider that, you know, we're good, good Christians, that we don't have major sin issues. But when you really dig down and think, look into those dark parts, dark parts of your heart, that's where you'll find the, the sin in your heart hiding, the things that you're, you're uh, ashamed of, the things that you do in secret. And so after the Magi heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So suddenly the star reappears, is the only thing I can assume, because they saw the star again and they're overjoyed. So it makes you wonder, what happened to the star to begin with? And I think what happened was, on their way, they realized, oh, well, Jesus probably won't be in Bethlehem because he's the king of the Jews. He'll be in Jerusalem. So we'll go to Jerusalem based on our own kind of guess of what has happened in these two years. And so they stopped trusting the star. They stopped trusting the scriptures. They started trusting their own intellect and ended up in Jerusalem talking to Herod, who had no idea who Jesus was or why he was there. And the star disappeared in that time. And so then after they are shown by the teachers of the law that Jesus would be in Bethlehem, they have to trust, trust God again to lead them to, to Jesus. Because Bethlehem's, you know, I don't know exactly how, how large it was, but it wasn't, you know, there was lots of, um, lots of two, two-year-old boys to go through, and he, they weren't going to knock on every door. Do you have Jesus, son of the king of the Jews? And so they had to trust God, and that's when the star reappears, and they're able to follow it. And so when we are trusting ourselves, we lose sight of the things that are guiding us. It reminds me of the story when Jesus, after preaching, gets in the boat and falls asleep with the disciples, and the storm rises up. And so the disciples have to hurry, wake up Jesus. There's a storm. We're all going to drown. You've got you to save us. And Jesus comes and calms the wind and the waves. Well, maybe the storm wouldn't have had to come if they wouldn't have allowed Jesus to go to sleep in their lives, if they wouldn't have let Jesus go to the, the back of the boat and Obviously, Jesus was a human and needed rest, but at a figurative level, they started. They took they took care of the boat themselves rather than allowing Jesus to take take care of the boat. And so, we need to remember that when we take matters in our own hands, that's when we get in trouble, and that's when we lose sight of where God is leading us. And so, after they see the star, they're overjoyed. They the the star stops over the place where the child was, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So these are three, three gifts. They had a long time to think about what to give Jesus. And these are actually very, very meaningful gifts, although it doesn't appear like it on the surface. So they gave Jesus gold, and this probably makes the most sense, because gold is a symbol of royalty, and it is a, it is a symbol of the royalty of Jesus. And the next gift they gave was, was frankincense, or incense, depending on your translation. And that was a, a, an incense used in worship. It was used in um, religious services, and that is a symbol of Christ's divinity. And the last gift is the most strange, is myrrh, which is used for embalming, which was a symbol of Christ's humanity and his, his ultimately his death. And so we can see by the gifts that the Magi gave that they symbolize all of, all of who Christ was. He was 100% man, 100% God, and King of, King of kings and Lord of lords. So after they give him the gifts, and, and because there's three gifts, we always think there are just three magi, but it doesn't, the text actually doesn't say how many magi there were. 
Um, They're warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod. They return to their own country by another route. And so we, have, we see the first dream of the story. And after they leave, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So we have the second dream of the story, and Joseph obeys. He gets up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed out of the death of Herod, and so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. I can only assume that the gold the Magi gave was helpful in that middle-of-the-night trip to Egypt. And maybe they didn't use it to, for the travels. Maybe they did. Maybe Joseph was a very successful carpenter in Bethlehem. We don't know. But, you know, they, at any rate, they had a, in the middle of the night, leave to save the life of Jesus. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance to the, with the time he had learned from the Magi. So this is the most difficult part of the story, and we're going to talk about this uh, at the end. But at this point, notice that Moses was a type of Jesus, because Moses was saved from, the, from Pharaoh's sword by fleeing, or by, we'll say fleeing to Pharaoh's house. All of the baby boys in Israel or in the Jewish nation were, were to be uh, killed according to the decree of Pharaoh. And by the, by the act of faith of Pharaoh's mother, he, she puts her, Moses in the basket, and Moses is saved by Pharaoh's daughter. And that's similar here, where Jesus is saved from Herod's sword because he flees to Egypt. So we can see you know, these, these themes that recur through the Bible. And we also see the third prophecy fulfilled here, a voice is heard in Ramah, a weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod dies, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And we see here the third dream of the story and Joseph's obedience. He gets up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. And at the end of the story, we see the fourth dream, the fourth act of obedience, and the fourth fulfilled prophecy. So there are there, there, there are three themes that are repeated four times, prophecy, dreams, and obedience. And we're, so we're going to cover these in order, starting with prophecy. And this is really a story of God's sovereign, sovereignty. It's a story of God's providence and how God works in our lives to, for, for our good. And in this story, he worked in Joseph's life and Jesus' life to save Jesus from Herod. The... Not only that, God is true to his word. And the amazing part of this story to me is, in many ways, it's completely unnecessary. You know, the, two of the prophecies were that Jesus would, be, would come out of Egypt and that he would be called a Nazarene. But as, 
for, for me, personally, that was, I, would, I would be able to believe that Jesus came from Egypt and was a Nazarene without having him flee to Egypt and ha- out having settled in, in Nazareth. And what I mean by that is that the entire nation of Israel escaped from Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, under Moses' lead. So all of anybody who was born in, born in Israel would have been, in essence, out of Egypt at some point. Yet God goes out of his way to make sure that Jesus was explicitly from, or ex- explicitly out of Egypt to fulfill the prophecy. And as far as being a Nazarene, his dad was a Nazarene. Or, it, Joseph was a Nazarene. So he, was, he would have, could have been called a Nazarene by, by virtue of his father being from that town. But it, God, again, goes out of his way to make sure that Joseph doesn't go back to Bethlehem, but yet goes back to Nazareth so that Jesus could explicitly fulfill the prophecy of being a Nazarene. And so we see that God is true to his word. He goes complete, and some, like I said, out of his way to make sure that Jesus fulfills the prophecies and that there's no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. So that there wouldn't be any, couldn't be a loose interpretation of the prophecy, but a very real interpretation of, of the proph- prophecies in Jesus. We also see so we see that God, God's providence and sovereignty in the prophecies, and we also see that God is his present voice, his voice, his active voice in the four dreams. He, the, both the Magi and Joseph have dreams, and, and this shows that God is still speaking to us. He doesn't just speak to us through his word, although that is one of the primary ways that he, he has shared his heart and his, his mind with us. He also is speaking to us in many other ways. And in this story, it's through dreams. And we see that the dreams mesh with the prophecy or mesh with the scripture perfectly. And so if you are feeling the direction of the Lord in some way, you can always check it against the written word. You can check it against what God has already revealed to us and make sure that those, those uh, ideas are, are, it, are meshing together and, and work, work together instead of being contradictory. And the, the last part that we see is four acts of obedience. The Magi don't go back to Herod, and Joseph goes to Egypt in the middle of the night, comes back after Herod dies, and then goes to Nazareth, all based on the leading of God. And these are all acts of, acts of obedience. For me, I think to myself, it would be easy to obey God if he had an angel appear to me in a dream. If I was sleeping and an angel woke me up and said, you need to take your whole family and move to Hawaii, I'm there. That's easy. If an angel appeared to me and said, you need to take your whole family and move to Kansas, I would probably blame it on bad eggnog. And, you know, this was, a, this was an act of obedience for Joseph to do this. Obviously, they had settled in Bethlehem and were quite happy there. They didn't go back to Nazareth after the census. Maybe they didn't go back because... It was kind of a tough place to go back to with the scandal of Mary's uh, pregnancy. Maybe there was lots of construction work for Joseph in Bethlehem. Maybe it was a booming time in their economy. We, we don't know exactly why they didn't go back to Bethlehem, go back to Nazareth. And, but they definitely stayed in Bethlehem until the Magi came. Maybe they just stayed because they, didn't, they, they weren't sure why they were there. And it was just so that the Magi could visit them. We're not sure, but... They, they stayed there instead of going immediately back to Nazareth. And 
when the, when the dream comes, Joseph obeys. And so we see here that God's providence works best when we're obedient to his word and his leading in our lives. We know that God works all things for, for good to those who love him and that what you know, the devil meant for, for bad, God used for good. These are all kind of themes that we, we know as Christians, that, and we, we call that God's providence, how God works things out for good. But what we often forget is that in all these stories of God's providence, there's an element of obedience. There's an element of obeying his word, even though we don't understand, even though it's, it's, it's hard to obey, blindly obey sometimes. That's when God's providence really, really shows itself. And then the last thing that I'd like to cover tonight is uh, perhaps the most difficult part, and that's the matter of the, all the two-year-old boys in Bethlehem. We just discussed how God is sovereign and God is good and how he worked this whole orchestrated thing to save Jesus from Herod's sword, to save, uh, to save Joseph and Mary, and how God's sovereignty is you know is is amazing in how he works in our lives like that. And so if God really is sovereign and omnipotent, how why did he allow all those two year old boys to die? Why did he only save Jesus instead of all of the all of the boys? I mean if, if God really is omnipotent and he really is good, why do bad things happen to good people? And this is a question that has been asked many, many times and it's a source of it's a stumbling block for many, many people. C. S. Lewis before he became a Christian was an atheist, and he writes, I did not believe God existed. I was also very angry with him for not existing. I was also angry with him for having created the world. But it's true. This is a problem that many skeptics have, and even many Christians have, is why, if God really is good, and if he really is omnipotent and can do anything he can or wishes to do, why does he allow bad things to happen? Why does he allow innocent children to be slain at Herod's sword, or allow tsunamis to kill hundreds of thousands of people in 12 hours or cancer to exist or any of the other evil things that happen in our world and so i'm not going to pretend to give a perfect answer to this in fact i don't believe a perfect answer exists this side of heaven but i do want to discuss this briefly and there are many many books written on this c.s lewis himself wrote a book called the problem of pain and god wrote a book called job and so there's lots of people that have studied this question, and if it's something that you really are interested in, I encourage you to study on your own. But let's, let's do look at this question. Why do bad things happen to good, good people? And this is really a question, a larger question of why does evil exist? And quite simply, evil exists because we live in a fallen world. Evil exists because we screwed up, we made bad choices, and we rebelled against God, and therefore evil entered the world. And evil is not a thing. We, to, to ask the question, why does evil exist, is kind of a, it doesn't really make sense to ask that question. It, it's like, why does darkness exist? Well, darkness exists because light doesn't exist in some place. And evil exists because God's goodness has, has failed because we have chosen rebellion. And evil exists because we, we meaning mankind, through Adam's choice, have chosen to rebel against God. But we should also kind of look at this question part by part. The first thing is, why do bad things happen? Who says they're bad? 
well, we decide that they're bad, but we're already in a fallen state. In the Garden, Garden of Eden, did, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, did roses have thorns? We don't know. But if they had thorns, would we think they were bad? Or do we only think they're bad because we are now fallen and we can associate bad to the thorn because we are now, our minds are now in a fallen state? The next part of the question is good people. Jesus says, why do you call me good? When he was asked a question as good teach, and is addressed a good teacher, he answered, no one is good except God alone. That's in Luke 18, 19. And so maybe the better question is, why do ba- good things happen to bad people? Because as we know, we are all fallen. We all are, uh, as, we, as I said, we all live in a fallen state. And so Jesus, to, to the answer to that question, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We see here that we don't deserve the good things that we get, but it's because of God's mercy. There's the classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, is not about how God is going to punish sinners, which is what you would assume. It's how God is saving the sinners from destruction, but at any moment he could allow them to fall to destruction. It is God's mercy and God's goodness that keeps us, that, that allows the good things to happen and allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And so maybe it's not exactly intellectually honest to rephrase the question as why do good things happen to bad people? But ultimately, this question is a question that re- requires faith. And as I said, we live in a fallen state, and in Romans, Paul writes, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who, who formed it? Why did you make me like this? It's really an inappropriate question for us to ask God, if you're so good, why do bad things happen? Because we're created by God. It's not up to the creation to talk back to the creator and ask these, these questions. We should accept God as God and God as sovereign and trust him. And as for the innocent babies that Herod killed... We have the confidence to know in Genesis 18.25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? We also know that God is a just God. And at some point we have to know, use faith to know that God will, will use justice and, and judge Herod and also bring justice to those innocent, innocent boys. But while this is a very intellectual, interesting discussion, why do bad things happen to good people and why does evil exist, Let's not lose sight of the main point, point of the story. And that, that point is that this is the story of Christ entering our world. That is God's solution to evil. He sent his son to solve the problem of evil in, this, in, in our world. How it got here, why it's here, why God didn't solve it some other way is a completely different question. But what we do know is that God sent his son to die, to solve the, the problem of evil in our world. And that is what is happening in this story. And so we see that it meant so much to God to save his, his son at this point in the story just so his son would die at the end of the story so that evil would be taken upon Jesus and the ultimate evil act would be done, the death of God, so that evil would be eradicated on earth. 
And we live in that process right now, and that process will be completed at the end of time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to fix the problem of evil in our world. We, we don't understand evil fully, but we do understand our own rebellious hearts. We understand that we are fallen people, and we thank you for sending, for coming to, to die on the cross to, to fix the evilness that we've created. It's, it's our mess, and yet you come to clean it up for us. Right now, we just ask that we could continue to look to you for our salvation and look to you in obedience to how you've spoken to us in both your word and in your present voice. Amen.